Hello, my name is Joanna Vanderfluck of JCV Art Studio, and welcome to a third episode of Sophisticated Creatives, which describes you, me, and today's featured guest, multi-published author, J.E. Jane Bernard. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We have had nothing but rain and wind today. How, how's the weather in your neck of the woods? Almost the same. The wind has died down now and it's a beautifully calm evening, but it's very wet. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm going to give our listeners a little introduction about all of your accomplishments. And uh, I'm gonna let them know that you were, the, you are, sorry, you were the founding member of the Calgary Crime Writers, and you're an active member of Sisters in Crime. You also served the Crime Writers of Canada as the Prairie Region Vice President. Jane's books have won her the 2016 Dundurn Unhanged Arthur, the 2011 Bonnie Peet, and the 1990 Saskatchewan Writers Guild Award. And that's just to name a few. Congratulations, Jane. Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> so I want to start off with talking about your series, The Falls. The first the book. The Falls. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first okay. book in this the first book in the series is When the Flood Falls. Then we have where the ice falls and your latest novel is why the rock falls now your novels take place in the rocky mountain foothills and can you give our listeners a more accurate description of that location well i can orient you on the continent okay so you think about where the rocky mountains are up not quite on the west coast because there is actually land beyond the rockies although some people in the east don't think so um, <laughs> so if you follow the rocky mountains up all the way from new mexico curving slightly west around idaho and you come to the canadian border a couple of hours drive north of there is calgary and if you go west from calgary about Another 20 minutes drive. Calgary's on the flat prairies. Yeah. Lots of green fields and open sky. Yeah. But 20 minutes west, you go around a little curve into some trees and suddenly you're in the foothills with pine forests and rolling hills and always, not very far to your west, are the majestic Rocky Mountains, which beautifully sunlit or not, tend to keep some snow on top well into July and sometimes August. Okay. Okay. I, living in BC, I have um, family in, who live in Calgary and I, I can, I can see it. It's what I remember is the foothills when you're talking about the trees from the foothills if you're driving to Calgary, you it's can you almost like see Calgary when you're heading in that direction? 
as soon as you get out of the trees, you can see the tops of the Calgary Towers. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, in a sense, that's an interesting bracket that I hadn't quite thought of before. Um, yeah. If you go going west, the mountains are always there like a like a solid rampart, and I can only imagine what the early settlers thought when they saw those massive granite and limestone cliffs looming over them. And if you're going east, you come out into these beautiful open spaces at, and, you know, for people who aren't used to it, in, in the mountains can be very claustrophobic. Yeah, true, true. So actually, one of the reasons I set the Falls Mysteries there yeah. is that I was fascinated by the transition zone. It's an environment transition okay. zone. It's a social social transition zone. It's a political transition zone. Uh, it's resource rich, but also wildlife rich. And the tensions among all those different elements um, make it a perfect place to set a mystery. That is really interesting. I, gosh, I didn't even think of that. I, well, I'm on the island. I've been, you know, born, raised on Vancouver Island. So that is, that sounds like the perfect location. So, all geez. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, all that said, I'm actually on the island now, too. Okay. I lived, I lived here as a baby and I came back for winters a few years ago. And now I'm actually leaving my beloved mountains behind and thinking of novels that I will write here on Vancouver Island. Nice, nice. That's Well, it's interesting because my uh, sister in Calgary, she'll sometimes say to me, you guys get earthquakes. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> and but when's the last time we had a tornado really? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I want to go to your website, well, I'm not physically going onto your website, but I was on your website and I saw a quote and it really struck me. And I'm just going to quote you here. You say, no book is worth devoting a year of my life to writing and editing unless it speaks to issues I hold dear. Do you want to share with the listeners where that statement came from, the motivation behind it? Well, I have always been, uh, I guess the current term is a social justice warrior in my way. Um, I fought for uh, national daycare programs under Mulroney, which was of course no, never going to happen, but I was young and idealistic. Um, I have raised um, the domestic violence issue after watching um, too many women and eventually myself get caught in a terrible trap of yeah. domestic violence and, and found that society was not built to support women and children caught in those situations. Um, and I think what really drove me into this, well, okay, I'm going to back up a little bit. Yeah. I started off to write mysteries, oh, a long time ago, when I realized that most of what I read was mystery. Yeah. And 
and I had always loved writing, so I thought I'd try my hand at one. And I tried my hand at a few, which never went anywhere, but in the 90s, I was um, hit with a, well, we call them invisible illness nowadays, myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. Which is a multi-system illness. And if you think of your body as a cell phone, you could charge this body all day and it will still only have about 15 minutes worth of work in it wow. before it needs charging again. Yeah. So, and that's any kind of work. That's breathing, that's digesting food, that's standing up, making food, showering, thinking, focusing, all of those things, 15 minutes maximum at a time. Um, and I was in university when I was struck down and it was a really searing time trying to get finished university. Good Lord, yeah, yeah. But, but basically here we are 30 years later, I have between two and four usable hours in a day. Okay. In terms of being able to write, create, focus, and still be able to make my own meals. Yeah. Um, so for me, when I say writing a book is not worth putting that much of my time in, I am literally choosing to write that book instead of watch TV, talk to my friends, pet my cat, yeah. um, sit in the sun and, or garden. It has to be something that is really personally important to me because I'm giving up about 80% of a normal person's joys in life to do that. And time. Time, time yes. I'm finding is so precious. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, so in, that's why I, yeah. 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 So in your first novel, When the Flood Falls, you write about domestic violence. Uh, your character, Lacey, she mm -hmm. has PTSD. And you tackle, I'm, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to say the, the entire name. Your, your character, Jan, she has M-E-C-F-S. Um, so just what made you, I'm curious. So what made you decide that character? She wasn't in my original plan. I was halfway through that book with no Jan in it, when I had my worst relapse yet with MECFS. And I spent the next two years in a darkened bedroom. Oh gosh. Um, basically, uh, my husband would make my breakfast and put my, my tea in a thermos before he left for work. Yeah. My son worked nights so that he would be home during the day um, because my heart was badly affected and I could have actually dropped dead. Um, yeah. at any time. Um, and so for, for two years, I, I was basically a non-person. I don't know if you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book series of science fiction and fantasy, but some people will recognize the character at the restaurant at the end of the universe who spent a year dead for tax purposes. And that's, a, that, that's how I feel about that time. I was 
one step up from dead. We didn't know if I was going to die or not. When I came back out of it, it took me about another three years before I could write a sentence longer than, than about, well, I could write a two-line email. And I had to work my way back into being able to finish that book. And I thought to myself, as I was coming out of it, this has been such a profound and really life-shattering experience Yeah. that what about all the other people who are living in dark rooms? Yeah. How many are there? And then I found out that there were over half a million Canadians with my illness. Whoa. Whoa. And half a million of them. Now, well, now it's closer to 600,000. But all of these people, nobody knows about us. Nobody hears about us because none of us have the spare energy to go out and do public awareness raising or public um, appearances. We, we don't have time or energy. We're so busy just trying to get through today with our 15 minutes little pockets of energy. And so I thought, I don't have a publisher. I didn't have a publisher then. Yeah. And I had all the time in the world because I wasn't immediately dying for a nice change. Yeah. And I slowly, slowly finished the book over the next few years. And it won the Dunder and Unhanged Arthur, oh. partly based on the strength of Jan's character. And now I'm really pleased to say it has become a touchstone for not only the 600,000 Emmy sufferers in Canada who have never, literally never, seen their lives portrayed in the fiction they read before, yeah. but also for two and a half million Americans and two million Brits and the 20 million people around the world who have Emmy and no answers. And you're, 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 you, you can't see me, but you're just, you know, I'm just about close to tears here. That is amazing. Um, and I think another thing that would be hard is, um, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's not as if you have a, a physical mark on your body to give some sort of an indication of what your body is going through. Thank you for mentioning that. That is absolutely correct. People who have ME can be very severely ill. And the only time you see us is when we're strong enough to leave the home. Oh, yeah. So um, now uh, my, my illness has worn me down enough that I have a wheelchair and I go everywhere with an oxygen concentrator, which are kind of clues yeah. that there's something seriously wrong with the way my body works. But before that, the most common thing that with people with ME here is you just need more exercise. Oh, God. Well, when your own body actually produces toxins yeah. that interfere with your energy production, exercise is the thing that will kill you. Yeah. And it's been very difficult for many of us dealing with the medical system and just with ordinary people and with employers with our own family members who can't see why if we look so normal, we can't do the things, the normal things we used to do. Right, right, okay. Wow, well, well thank you for 
sparing time to be with me and talk about your book. Thank you. So let's go go for a little further and I want to talk about writing a novel. I look at it as I don't know, this may not be a very good comparison, but it's like baking a scratch cake. I absolutely hate cooking, okay? And <laughs> baking, I, I, I like, okay? So when you're baking a cake, you're juggling, like you got eggs, you're mixing, you're measuring, you're incorporating wet ingredients, and you're, you're trying to pull something together that tastes good and uh, people will enjoy. So... Where I'm leading with that, people are probably thinking, what the heck is she talking about? So with your second novel, Where the Ice Falls, you bring in issues about medical assistance in dying and step parenting. And thinking about that cake, I'm wondering, when you write, do you have like a, a first draft? Do you have bare bones? Do you have a second draft that's trying to connect all the issues? Let's say in chapter one to the end, change, like people, oh, I shouldn't say people. For me, writing a novel, it's not just straight, bam, I get it done and I get everything together in that first draft. No, there, like you said, there wasn't Jan in the original, like originally. Um, you have changing motivations. Um, so how do you weave all these issues together, medical assistance and dying in your mystery novel, yet you also keep the flavor of the mystery and you're balancing multi-plot lines? Like how is your process to do all, all of this, Jan? Is it your characters, like your characters, they shoulder the responsibility and tell the story? Is that what you do, Jan? James, sorry. Yeah, I should never have named her Jan. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just moved. I'm just really moved. And thank God you did bring Jan into your books. Thank you. So, yeah, please tell me your your process, Jane. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I, I'm kind of sorry that Jan is a crashing success because a lot of people forget about Lacey. Okay. And I want to back up to that for just a second, but I will promise I will talk about the cake. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lacey's PTSD, Lacey's violent ex-husband is, is also a police officer. Oh, wow. She comes out of a marriage and a job, which is really hard on a lot of women. And she has, she knows the stats on domestic violence. She knows that the first domestic violence incident is rarely the only one, but when it happens to her, she gains a whole new understanding of what it's like to be on the outside of the police, oh, looking wow. in and understanding how very much limited she is. So uh, I, well, I tend to put the focus on Jan when I'm talking because I am very intimately acquainted with Jan's issues as an ME person trying to get through a day. Yes. But it, that is also a very big problem. And increasingly, we now know that police marriages are some of the highest domestic violence occupations in the world. Right. 
and Lacey is a forerunner in that area. So I don't want Lacey's issues to be completely overshadowed. And she is a wreck when she gets out of that marriage. She comes to Bragg Creek hoping for some respite in this peaceful, almost mountain town with streams and you know, wind blowing and beautiful sky and scenery everywhere. And what she gets instead is the neighbor up the hill who looks like a crazy person because she doesn't know anything about Emmy and she thinks Jan's a drug addict. Yeah. And then her old university friend that she's living with is being stalked and she has to call on all of the policing skills that she hoped she was leaving behind and set aside her own healing to deal with her friend. So I just wanted to go back to that because that those two issues, Lacey's PTSD from domestic violence and Jan's ME are the two really important issues for me in that first book. But how did we get there? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the, the scratch cake thing because since COVID, yeah. I have learned to bake a scratch cake. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, my, uh, I, I'm in temporary quarters in beautiful Comox Valley. My landlady has chickens and she brought me fresh eggs every day all summer long. Yeah. And I learned to make a scratch cake and you are absolutely correct, Joe. Oh, there good. is a huge overlap between how to bake a cake and from scratch and how to create a novel, to build a novel. Yeah. Um, you have the basic recipe. Yeah. You know, these many eggs, this much flour and so on. Yeah. And you have to bake it and scratch cakes are not bump resistant, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you make a noise in the kitchen, your beautiful construction is apt to start sinking like a collapsed air balloon, hot air balloon. Yeah. Uh, well, Novels are kind of like that, except as long as you don't have a computer meltdown at the exact moment that you can arrest the sinking in a novel. You cannot arrest the sinking in a scratch cake. Um, but how it works for me, and I'm going to go back to the issue of medical assistance in dying. Yeah. I did write an outline of the basic mystery plot. Okay. Then I wrote about the characters around that each of the elements in that mystery plot. Okay. Little character sketches, plots about what would their past life have to be like? And I guess this would be the equivalent of picking which spices am I gonna put in my cake today? Yeah. Am I gonna put in more cinnamon or more nutmeg or less of those and more ginger? Those are the spices, the little elements, but Medical assistance in dying is something that I, one of my, my social justice issues, and I think that comes back to being um, in part chronically ill. For a while, I was really desperate to not be trapped like that forever. And there was no legal way out. And I would not put my family through the trauma of me suiciding. Yeah. So I stuck it out. I stayed alive. Yeah. But I wanted that option. Okay. I needed that option of an end point if it just became unbearable. Right. Um, and I didn't have that. So I was very, cons you know, I was following at the time the Canadian progression 
towards assisted dying legislation. Yeah. And so I wanted to have a character in that, but I didn't want it to be the whole focus of the story. So it couldn't be one of the main characters. And obviously I'm very reluctant to kill off my main characters because they're kind of like friends of mine. Yeah. When you don't get out much, you make really close friends with your imaginary um, characters. Yeah. So who in the story had a parent or someone who could be dying or be exploring this question? And when it went in, it was Dee's mother, that's Lacey's roommate's mother, is coming to spend her last Christmas because her cancer has returned and she's terminal. Yeah. And while she's there, she tells Dee and Lacey that she intends to ask for medical assistance in dying when the time comes. And that gave me an opportunity through Dee and through Lacey and through a nurse who's a friend of theirs to, to talk about how do families deal with that when somebody comes to them and says, I want to die and I'm going to ask my doctor to help me. Yeah. You know, that's a, that, if you haven't had these discussions, um, and in my family, we have had those discussions because my father had quite a severe stroke a few years ago. And he was very concerned with the process of the legislation as well. He did not want to be like his friends trapped, yeah. dying in a hospital bed with no ability to communicate, with no uh, way to push a button. And yeah. he, you know, fortunately for him, he held on long enough un until he could legally apply. And he had a very smooth process uh, through his assisted death, for which I absolutely credit yeah. the people at Royal Jubilee Hospital. Yeah, They were wonderful from start to finish. Um, but when I started writing this book, I didn't know he was sick. Okay. Or that sick. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't his stroke that killed him. It was other things that were killing him. So I was literally baking this cake, if you will, when my oven exploded. Yeah. My father yeah. came and said, the time's coming. I can't carry on much beyond this Christmas. Oh, wow. And that sent me back through every time I had discussed assistance in dying. And I had tried very carefully to, um, to discuss the pros and cons in the different characters. You know, the nurse talked about how she personally uh, deals with being a Catholic and knowing that some of her patients are going to request this. And the the um, the mother talks about her perspective and the daughter d gets to talk about her perspective i went back through all of those things and i thought about them from the experiences of my family now facing this issue right how are my characters reflecting some of the chaos confusion and and the real struggle that some of us have to accept that someone we love wants to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I didn't, I set it out to put that into my cake as kind of a, um, simply as a peripheral discussion. Yeah. And through the force of circumstance in my own life, it became 
a deeper experience for my characters and hopefully for my readers yes. as well. Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. So we, you have a third book. I have a third book. Oh, so you're in your third novel because we've only hit two books. Okay. <laughs> okay. Heavens and the time is flying by. Yes. So, uh, no, but I'm just thinking with the, I'm, I'm not even thinking about the time. I'm thinking about with, uh, with the issues you tackle in your books. Like, I'm just, I'm just thinking we've got a third book. So I'm, I'm okay. So the third, I'm going to tell the listeners, the third book is why the rock falls. I'm, I'm going to give it to you. You can say better what your, your novel is about. So over to you, Jane. Okay. Well, why the rock falls? We think of rocks as immovable, as solid objects. And one of the common phrases is that we hear for just flying around a conversation, you know, my husband is my rock, my, my family is my rock, um, my church is my rock. Rocks fracture. My husband is a lapsed uh, petroleum engineer and everybody in the oil industry thinks about rocks obsessively because the kind of rock you have to drill through and the kind of rock where oil collects and, and they drive down a beautiful scenic valley and they talk about this shale layer and that gravel and the Cambrian and the pre-Cambrian and, and all of these very rock-like things you can pretty much show them any piece of rock. But the other thing you know, if you live in the mountains or near the mountains is rocks fall down all the time. Yes. Whole mountainsides fall off the hillside. And I tried to bring that into these people's lives, these characters' lives in Why the Rock Falls. There are invisible fracture lines in everybody's marriage, in everybody's job, in everybody's psyche. And the wrong combination of frost, if you will, working its way into a crack or wind scouring off the surface until it exposes a fault line yeah. or dynamite from outside from, you know, fracking for fracking. We now know can trigger earthquakes. Um, so metaphorically why the rock falls is about these invisible fracture lines that exist in all our lives and how when some greater pressure happens it triggers not only an earthquake in this person's life or in this family but on and on and on it's like the ring of fire when you have an earthquake down by south america it can run all the way around the pacific ring of fire and um you know crack a nuclear reactor in japan Okay. Yes. That is an amazing, I love that. I shouldn't say I love that comparison, but that those invisible fault lines, that's, yeah, that's a great comparison. So it doesn't tell you much about the book. So maybe I should actually talk about <laughs> the you know what we just Jane, we just might take a little bit of an interlude and okay. we'll be right back. Okay. Yes. Just Okay.
Welcome back to JCV Art Studio and Sophisticated Creatives. I have Jane Bernard, and we've been having um, just fascinating discussions about her novels. And I don't want to say the issues, but um, the, her characters and what makes what what encompasses her characters. So we are going to, I'm going to take it back, send it back to Jane so she can give us a teaser about her third novel in the Falls Mystery Series and her third novel being Why the Rock Falls. Take it away, Jane. All right, thank you, Joe. I'm, I'm thinking about this and wondering where to start and in my head, although page one is not a dinner party, in my head, the key early scene in Why the Rock Falls is a dinner party at a, an oil millionaire's hilltop estate overlooking Bragg Creek. And Jan and Lacey and Dee are neighbors of this oil millionaire, Jake. He's in all the books as a peripheral character. Okay. So they're invited to make up the numbers and kind of leaven this dinner party that he thinks could be a little tense because he's putting a known environmentalist Hollywood movie director who is in town doing movie shoots or movie scouting for locations and is staying at Jake's place with his wife and son in the same room with another very entrenched anti-environmentalist oil millionaire named Oren Kane. Yeah. And if you think Citizen Kane and J.R. Ewing in the same package, you would get Oren Kane. Okay. Um, Oren is coming with by helicopter from his ranch further up the foothills with some of his sons and some of their wives and his latest wife. <laughs> I like that. And <laughs> yes, latest wife. Oren has three wives, four sons in various stages of maturity, and he likes to play games with their inheritance. Oh, wow. He is, he, he, he is always threatening somebody. Okay. If they don't do things his way. Okay. And he didn't get to the top of the, not just the Calgary oil patch, but the international oil world by being a nice guy. Yeah. Except now he's older and his youngest son, Tyrone, is 12 and the apple of his eye. And he spent, has no qualms about not only telling off the movie director over his environmental uh, stances, uh, mm -hmm. but his own children over their various failings. Um, he's not shy about seemingly making a pass at the movie director's wife. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, the movie director, who is kind of an alpha male in his own right, responds by making a less obvious, but probably much more appealing pass at Oren's current wife. Oh, and so Lacey and Jan and Dee are all there supposedly trying to keep the peace for Jake, who is between wives and doesn't have a woman in the house to play the social role. Yeah. And get them through this dinner so that they can come to an agreement about which places 
Milo, the movie director, will be using for his forthcoming movie. Okay. So you can see already there, there's lots of potential fault lines in these families. Conflict. <laughs> lots yeah, of conflict. Major yeah. conflict. <laughs> wow. Okay, um, then. And the, 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 oh, and Oren has an environmentalist son who he's tried to disinherit a few times. Okay. And nobody mentions his name. Oh. So that's where we roll from. And Lacey and Jan have to split up the chores when things are happening at Oren's ranch up in the foothills and around Jake's estate where the movie director is staying. And Jan and Lacey have to put all their skills together to keep in communication because one of them might find out something that is absolutely key to what the other one needs to know before literally these tensions boil over and the cause a landslide. Wow, okay, okay. So you mentioned environmentalists and oil and Alberta. Mm -hmm. And from what you've just, with our teaser, this is not your typical who shot JR. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you are taking the reader, it sounds like, into the politics and the geography of Alberta. Are your readers going to learn about environmental issues with regards to the Eastern Slope? Yes. To, uh, now, this is not, I would not say this is an environmentalist novel. Okay. Um, but again, like with Where the Ice Falls, events have kind of overtaken my book. Yeah. While it came out, when I wrote this book, we had a lovely string of pristine provincial parks along the eastern foothills of the Rockies. They protected it from development. They protected um, wildlife breeding habitats. Uh, they protected um, trout streams and watersheds and pockets of rare um, beetle, uh, you know, pine, pine beetle-free zones. Yeah and so on. But in Alberta, there's always this tension between what is good for resources. And I think I mentioned this at the beginning, the, the, the tension between the resources and the wilderness and the people on both sides of that issue. The foothills is a transition zone well. Right. A lot of that stuff was protected, but one of the responses to the pine beetle threat coming over the mountains was a proposal that a five kilometer wide thousand kilometer long strip of the foothills should be logged absolutely bare clear cut yeah somebody made that proposal yeah we'll just cut five thousand square feet uh, or square miles kilometers five thousand square kilometers wow. of timber down and sell so, and and sell it so that um to stop the march of the pine beetle yeah. Well, that was fortunately shot down because the government at the time said, um, well, what about all these parks in the way? Right. You know, people come here for these parks. Yeah. You can't just cut them all down. Yeah. And so that proposal was shot down. But 
Fast forward a few years, and here we are in uh, a worldwide energy transition. Yes. And the current Alberta government is still betting heavily on oil and gas, and which are already in development in the foothills, and there's some tension between Orrin Kane and his son over where exactly thing, places are getting drilled and clear-cut. Now, the current Alberta government wants to delist a whole bunch of those parks and license them for coal mining. Oh, wow. Wow. So, coal mining, even at its most carefully done, disrupts the surface of the land far more than oil drilling does. It has much more toxic on-site waste products. Yeah. It gets into the streams, it kills the fish, it poisons beavers, it it is a catastrophe. It is the nuclear option in terms of the environment on the eastern slopes. And so if I had waited six more months to finish that book, yeah. I would have seen this coming and I would have included it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That, wow. Like I say, your, your novels, as, we, as, I, as we're going through them, and you're you're like when the flood falls and you're giving us like i say your your characters and the issues you deal with and then where the ice falls your characters what they're going through the issues you you deal with that's why i, I was thinking the third novel why the rock falls okay what's coming right and when i mean that with um, much admiration too wow wow what you know what a way of see now i don't with mine why i started writing is because i didn't like the everybody see i worked at like at the prosecutor's office and i didn't like um individuals coming in and saying i've been i've been charged with grand theft auto and i'm thinking american right like it's just <laughs> We don't have that here. It's, um, I can still, I think I still even know the section number, section 334A of the criminal code, which is theft over 5,000. Okay. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's crazy that some of the stuff I retain, but don't ask me what someone's name is that I met 10 minutes ago. Okay. Um, but in it, it's, it's wanting to educate and you, you're doing more than educating you. You are bringing very, important issues to the forefront in your novels that's wow wow that's that's great that's great that 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 that's very good so one more question and uh with respect to novels and with i'm i'm, and I'm especially thinking with with what your novels encompass when I write, I, for example, I'm just going to use the example from last weekend. I'm writing the climatic scene, okay? And uh, it's ugly, 
and it's humiliating for my heroine. And I remember I was going at it, typing away. You know, I'm not even, it's, it's every author knows this and you know this where you are basically just like a conduit. You're just trying to get these words typed fast enough to get these words out and onto paper before they leave, right? You're, you're, not, you're not physically or mentally thinking, oh, she's now going to say this. It's just, it's coming, right? And um, so I'm in this scene and it's ugly and it's humiliating for my heroine. But then at one point, a part of me wanted to say, you really wanna go there? You really wanna go down that route? And it's cause it's gonna get ugly. And then the other part of me is thinking, go. You know, it just like, don't stop. You got to go there, you know? So um, after that scene, I remember, <laughs> thank goodness my husband didn't come home because sometimes he has, and I just kind of walk out like a, a little stunned animal, you know, deer in headlights. And uh, I thought, I got to clear my head now. So I got the dog. We went out for a walk. So you were writing about heavy, personal, important issues how do you clear your head after all of this? Oh, I would, I, I have to say, I would love to be able to go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Walking was my go-to for everything. I got okay. me into writing. It got me out of writing. So when I stopped being able to go for a walk, it was, it was really a personal tragedy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but you're, you're correct. We all, we get so involved in the lives of our characters and the last place we want to go is someplace that is awful and humiliating and terrifying. And I too have been there because there's a scene in why the uh, where the ice falls, yeah. where Lacey is remembering something that her ex-husband did to her. Yeah. And it is awful and humiliating. And I didn't want to go there and I didn't want to go there. It's not something that ever actually happened to me, but I did some work with Transition House and I heard enough from women who were in there. Yes. Fleeing from their abusive spouses. So I knew pretty well what the mechanics were. And I, I was able to extrapolate from my own experience to know how humiliating it was. But when I finished writing that scene for the first time, yeah, I was so traumatized that I woke up my friend yeah in, who is lives in the east who is a actually she's a trained therapist okay and i said i'm really sorry to do this to you but i have badly badly traumatized myself writing this scene and please oh. talk to me oh yeah and she was wonderful yeah and and she talked me through it And we discussed too some of the tools that Lacey would be using in that, or would need to be using, would need to learn to cope with her own PTSD symptoms. Right. And I found some of them worked for me and I actually have her using them in the third book. Excellent. So it was a real learning experience for me, but yes, we all do. Sometimes we ugly cry when yeah. we're writing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the thing I remember, you know, you read, I, well, reading, writing, how, not how to write a novel, but you know, you're reading, you read about building characters 
And the, the quote that uh, stuck with me was, if the author isn't crying or if the author isn't feeling sad or if the author isn't feeling mad, the reader won't either. And that, mm. that just stuck with me. Yeah. So, well, I, sorry. And then there's that famous quote, which I can never remember who said it. Um, something about writing is easy. All you have to do is sit at your typewriter and then bleed onto the page. <laughs> and I always yeah, have this image in my head of stabbing uh, something <laughs> into the veins in my wrists and just like bleeding onto yeah. the page because yeah. it, it is it can be very harrowing and a lot of people if they knew how much we we writers put ourselves through emotionally yeah. to yeah. make that they they would think we're nuts yeah yeah and the other thing that blows me away with writing is you know i'll have a scene and it's and i know i know it's wrong i know it's wrong and i've, I've said this to the spouse okay, this isn't right. This isn't right. I've got to fix this. You know, no, I'm having troubles with this scene. It's not working. And then I was in Brentwood Bay and I was waiting for a friend to have coffee and I was sitting there and, you know, away from it. And I just kind of looked up and I thought this, 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 and it was like, click, 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 click. And I thought that's how to fix it. And I was scrambling, trying to find a napkin and I was writing down, okay, this, this, this. So, you know, yeah, you, 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 you do bleed. <laughs> and then you're looking for the band-aid because you figure it out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, oh. absolutely. I, I actually, I put my poor husband through that too. He gets, yeah. we have a hot tub in our backyard and we would sit out there under the stars, relaxing on a on a you know a cool crisp fall night like this one and i'd yeah. say you know i have this problem with this scene yes. and <laughs> that's it for the next hour and a half i just talked to him about my book yeah yeah <laughs> until yeah, i have worked right. out what i want to say so uh, he's very patient yeah. and, and he listens to it but by the time the book is actually finished I have to yeah. honestly say he doesn't want to read it because he's had to live with these characters for the last three years and he exactly. didn't invite them. Yeah. Yeah. I know my, my husband has said to me or people will ask him, they'll say, so what's your wife's book about? And, or have you read it? He goes, no, I haven't read it. And he goes, I know it. I know. I know. I know. I know. I, 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 right? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when we were testing out our link a couple of days ago, I have to I have to mention this story because it just it I thought it was so sweet. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for you know sharing your process and your motivations and um, your goals with your novels. And as we go into a bit of a, a, a lighter topic, when we were testing out the link for this podcast, you and I started talking about um, uh, art, or you would ask me about art. And I had mentioned about how, you know, uh, as a teenager, I wasn't allowed to have boyfriends. So my, one of my sisters gave me a, I think it was for Christmas, a sketch pad and charcoal pencils. And I spent my, you know, hormonal teenage years 
doing sketches, um, charcoal sketches of every band member in the rock band Queen, right? It was great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And you had mentioned to me that you seem to have a thing for the two gyms. And I thought if you didn't mind sharing your, your thing with the two gyms. Oh, yes. When you said that about the drawing queen, I instantly knew that we had to be kindred creative spirits because <laughs> I drew Jim Morrison's from face from every possible angle. And I still have a charcoal drawing that I did of Jimi Hendrix square on staring right at me every once in a while I'll be leafing through folders and I will find that sketch and go oh yeah Jim there was so much <laughs> I think power in the music and I wanted as a teenager that power yeah. for me and and yeah. drawing them was part of of drawing into myself the freedom yeah. To, to really claim my creativity and I was really obsessed with it but also I sometimes draw really pretty things like um, you know my friend Rosemary in her flower garden and okay and that that's more of a Monet impressionist kind of thing with very loose lines but yes the rock see this is another way that invisibles come into play because anybody looking at us would yeah. see two mild-mannered um, polite women and inside, we are screaming fans of hard rock musicians. Yes, we are. And it is not dead. You, no one, yeah. you can't, it is not dead. It's coming back. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jane, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, where can the readers find you on social media and, and in your website? What, what's your, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, the easy way is janebarnard.ca. That's J-A-Y-N-E-B-A-R-N-A-R-D dot C-A. Okay. And that links you to the Falls Mysteries and my other works okay. as well. So you can also, you know, look up the Falls Mysteries on Facebook. Uh, you can look up J.E. Bernard on Twitter. Uh but under, if you look for me on Instagram, you have to look for saffron.hemlock. Okay. And if you know anything about plants, those are two nice poisonous plants. Oh. Saffron and hemlock. Okay. Okay. And no, I haven't poisoned anybody in the Falls Mysteries yet. Yet. I was going yeah, to say. Yeah. Okay. Well, since absolutely and sincerely, thank you for joining me. And uh, for those who are listening, if you could click follow or uh, share this podcast on your social media, or, you know, more people learn about Jane's novels. And um, that would really, I would really, really appreciate that. So, well, bye-bye, Jane, and bye to our listeners. And uh, I hope everyone has a good day. <laughs>